This is Beyond Reading the Bible, where we connect you with the living Word. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. I'm Lindsay Kennedy. And I'm Randy McCracken. So in the past, in our podcast, we have discussed the matters of historical backgrounds and how important it can be in our reading of the Bible to really understand what's going on in the background, things that perhaps are not immediately apparent to us living in the year that we live and the culture that we live. These things might be a, a gap from the ancient culture and the times of the Bible. So we're wanting to help bridge that gap in our episodes. And what we're going to do in this episode and a few others following is we're going to be giving some practical examples for historical backgrounds can make. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing the background to the letter of Romans and just how the historical background and the issues in Rome's history apply to the letter and, and actually impact our understanding of the letter and our understanding of the reasons for Paul even writing this letter. Yeah, that's right, Lindsay. And it's, it's important that we uh, consider the background to this letter because it really opens up our eyes to some of the things it says in the letter that we can overlook if we approach the book with different presuppositions. For instance, this is Paul's great letter of uh, theology where he shares with us, you know, everything that he believes, uh, which isn't the case, but uh, sometimes people have approached it in a manner like that. When it comes to Romans, uh, I think of all of the letters, we're, we're quite familiar with the idea of, of looking at the background to letters like the, the letter to the Philippians. We'll, we'll go and read Acts 15, perhaps, and, and say, oh, here's some background to the creation of the church here. But possibly because there is no record of the creation of the church in Rome, maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't tend to do this with the letters of the Romans. We, we tend to treat it as if it just dropped out of, of heaven straight into the Bible. Uh, commentators have done this especially, have treated Romans as if it was Paul's exhaustive uh, definition of the gospel and, and every everything he believes about everything. And, and we know just practically it isn't uh, because we don't have much on eschatology. Uh, there aren't detailed sections on Christology like you have in, let's say, Philippians or Colossians even. No, that's right. And uh, hopefully uh, our uh, listeners will agree when we're finished that there's actually a lot uh, that we can learn about the historical background to Paul's letter to the Romans. A lot we can learn about uh, what was going on in Rome at the time, a lot we can learn about the makeup of the church there, and how all of those things will then feed into helping us kind of flesh out the letter, see it as written to people uh, with real flesh and blood uh, who have problems, who have issues, who have situations that Paul is seeking to address here in this letter. And I, and I think uh, we could share with our listeners that part of what has motivated us to do this is, uh, first of all, you and I both taught through the book of Romans, so it's a book that we're uh, somewhat familiar with. And uh, our goal here on Beyond Reading the Bible isn't to go verse by verse through a book. There's a lot of good podcasts out there that do that. But what we want to do is share tools uh, that help people in their study of the Scripture. And we just thought using the letter to the Romans, something that you and I have both taught, would be a great way to illustrate how you can use some of these other tools uh, and apply them to your study of the Bible. Great. Well, why don't we actually begin the topic? So Rome is not just any other city in the ancient world, is it, Randy? 
No, that's right. Obviously, it's the capital of the empire. Uh, everything uh, goes out from Rome. And so what happens in Rome is extremely significant. It's like the popular saying, all roads lead to Rome. <laughs> right. If, if we think of Rome like that, it was a hub and everything, everything related to Rome. It was really the center. I'm sure that the Romans themselves believe it to be the, the center of the world. I'm sure they did, yeah. And um, maybe we should begin this, uh, Lindsay, not only with talking about, well, how did the church get started in Rome? But, uh, of course, when you have a church in the first century, you would expect that there is going to be a Jewish community in Rome as well. And so we might talk a little bit about how did the Jews get to Rome? And do we have any idea of how many Jewish people lived in Rome? Were there synagogues in Rome? And that, that sort of thing. Right, yes, because of course, as Paul and other missionaries went about, they would often begin by speaking in the synagogues, by sharing the message of Christ with, with the Jewish people. So it's a, it's a very natural thing that historically the churches grew out of the Jewish population and the Jewish um, believers would be a large or a significant portion of the church. Yeah, that's right. So um, the, the earliest records uh, seem to indicate that uh, Jews came to Rome because of Pompey's conquest of Jerusalem in 63 BC. And Pompey, as some people who know a little bit about Roman history might know, he was sort of the, uh, uh, the guy who was uh, tussling with uh, Julius Caesar over control of the Roman Empire. And in his conquest of Jerusalem, he deported a number of Jews to the city of Rome. And that got the uh, uh, beginnings of the Jewish community started in uh, the city of Rome. It's estimated, um, uh, you know, as the decades went along, that the Jews composed somewhere between 5% of the population in Rome. Um, depending what sources you read and what commentaries you read, uh, you can read about uh, different estimates on the population of Rome as a whole and on the Jewish population. Some would say there were anywhere from 900,000 to a million people in the city of Rome. And uh, others would say then that the Jewish population, well, I've read estimates anywhere from 15,000 to 60,000. So that's a big wide gap, but it also does suggest that, you know, there's a significant amount of, of Jews in the city of Rome. Another factor that, that could increase this number, when we're thinking about the Jewish influence, perhaps, not so much Jewish population, but the, the number of God-fearers, the Gentiles who who would attend synagogue, who would worship the God of Israel, but wouldn't be, wouldn't be Jews, but they would still follow many of the practices. I'm sure that would also influence the, the impact that Jewish culture would have had in Rome. Yes, certainly that, that would be true. Now, having talked just briefly about Jewish presence in Rome, let's ask the question, how did the church begin? Because as you mentioned earlier in the episode, Lindsay, uh, we have accounts throughout the New Testament of how other churches began, but yet we don't seem to have an account of how the church in Rome began. So what is the best understanding by scholars of probably how the church in Rome got its start? Yeah, it's a good question to ask, isn't it? If we don't, do we have any historical record? Do we have any hints to go from? So we know that, that Peter is associated with the church in Rome through the Gospel of Mark and then also some of Peter's letters we can people have uh, thought that they're attached to Rome 
And then we also know that through church history that, that he visited and died there. And we also know the same about Paul, that he was in Rome. And we even see that in the book of Acts and that he was imprisoned in Rome and, and went to trial there. He, he appealed to Caesar, so he was taken to Rome. But we don't have any historical record of any apostle founding the church. So, Randy, where do you think the church came from? How did it actually begin? There's actually a really interesting passage back in Acts chapter 2, verse 10. And so this is the day of Pentecost, uh, the day that the church began when Peter uh, preached the first sermon in which 3,000 people responded to the Lord. And in the beginning verses there of Acts, we have a description of the fact that because of the feast, um, there were Jews gathered from all over the Roman world, um, and they were there at Jerusalem. And among those listed, we're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, are visitors from Rome and proselytes. And so uh, it may very well be that on the beginning day of the church, some of these uh, Roman Jews who were there in the crowd and who heard Peter's sermon actually became believers and eventually took the gospel back to the synagogues in Rome. This at least is um, one theory that uh, is proposed by scholars. Even if it didn't happen uh, through the visitors on the day of Pentecost, we do know that there was a lot of communication uh, between Jerusalem and the Jewish community in Rome. And uh, so whether through people making visits, sending letters, whatever it might be, uh, obviously, um, word got back from Jerusalem to Rome uh, and began, the gospel began to be preached in the synagogue by some who were converted. Right now, when we think of the city of Rome, Rome is not, it's important that we, that we remember that these are many synagogues or at least a number of synagogues. It's not just one central location. It's, it's several different synagogues that would have received the gospel. Yeah. And that's really important uh, because even if we take the low figure that we mentioned of Jewish community, let's say there's only 15,000 Jews in Rome. That's still way too many to fit in one synagogue. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's no public yeah, building uh, that large that the Romans would allow that large of a group of uh, Jews to meet in. And so they're going to meet throughout the city in Rome in much smaller buildings, uh, probably even homes at times. And the reason that's important is because not only... Uh, do we need to recognize that when we say that the gospel was preached in the synagogue, we're not talking about one, but many. But this filters over into our understanding uh, of the beginnings of the church in Rome. If there were many synagogues and um, if, if uh, people were becoming converted to Christianity, uh, they were probably also starting house churches in different parts uh, of the city of Rome. Right, and that's, that's exactly what we find in Romans chapter 16, isn't it, Randy? We actually find several of these house churches uh, referenced by Paul. Yeah, this is a little nugget that's tucked away in Romans 16. Lots of times when we get to places in the Bible where we're either reading genealogies or we're reading so-and-so is greeting so-and-so, uh, we're, we're tempted to either not read that at all or read over it as quickly as possible. But as you go through Romans chapter 16, what you see is Paul sending greetings to people who meet in various groups within Rome, suggesting that there are a number of different Christian house churches. Uh, to give you uh, the verses that, that sort of illustrate this, and uh, we won't take the time to read them all, but in chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, 
Paul says to greet the, uh, the greet Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meets in their house. And then in, in verse 10, Paul identifies another group. In verse 11, another group. In verse 14, another group. And again, in verse 15, another group. So we have at least five different groups uh, in Romans 16 that Paul conveys greetings to. Is there any indication of how large these actual house churches would have been? We can't say for sure, but one thing that we do know is that um, Christianity would not have been a, a legal religion, and so they wouldn't have been able to meet in some sort of public building. And so they would have had to meet in the homes of members. Uh, wealthier members would have had uh, nice homes, uh, but the average person of Rome would probably have lived in an apartment building, which means that uh, you're only going to accommodate uh, a few people. So estimates range, you know, anywhere from 10 to 25 to maybe 50 people uh, per, per group. Of course, at the very beginning, the Christians would have been associated with uh, the Jewish community. The, the, there's evidence that the Romans saw the, the Christians as just part of Judaism, and they made no distinction between the Jews and Christians. But um, it, it soon became apparent that, in fact, the Christians were a distinct group. So um, one of the events that we're going to talk about here that dramatically affected church leadership in Rome has to do uh, with a decree that Claudius Caesar made regarding the Jews. In fact, there's really two decrees. Um, we know from uh, Roman history that in 41 AD, something was going on in the Jewish synagogues in Rome. We're not told what, but there was some sort of disturbance that leads the emperor Claudius to restrict the public meeting of Jews. Now, just a few years after that, most scholars date it to 49 AD. This disturbance is so great that Claudius actually expels the Jews from Rome. But in the process of expelling the Jews, this also includes Jewish Christians who are expelled from Rome because, again, Rome is making no distinction at this point uh, or understanding that there might be a difference between Judaism and Christianity. And we even have a mention uh, of this I event, don't we, Lindsay, in Acts chapter 18. Yeah, it's one of those sort of surprising moments, isn't it, where you, you hear about something historical like this and you think, oh, that's, that's interesting. And then you suddenly realize there's a verse that talks about it. So in, in Acts 18, when Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth, it says he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, and recently came from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. And why did they come here? Well, because Claudius, it says, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So it's pretty clear, isn't it? That's a very clear support of what we're talking about, even in the Exactly. Bible. Now, we might ask the question, what was it that was causing this disturbance uh, in the Jewish synagogues that, that would cause such a, a strong reaction uh, by the Roman emperor to actually expel the Jews from Rome? So when we look at the book of Acts, uh, we know that the modus operandi of the Christians was to go into a city and the synagogues there and to begin to share the gospel. Uh, some Jews would come to believe. Some of the Gentiles who uh, were attending synagogue would also come to believe. But we know, too, that there was always problems because those who uh, did not come to faith in Christ uh, would often stir up contention and problems. And we'll look at a few of those passages in just a moment. 
but before we look at those passages in Acts, there's an interesting report that we actually have from a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius, who actually mentions why Claudius expels the Jews. And Lindsay, why don't you share that with us? So what we have from Suetonius is that, that he said that the reason why Claudius expelled the Jews is because they kept writing at the instigation of Crestus, right? some, some person or thing called Crestus. Now, Randy, I, I'm wondering if, if you can enlighten us, what would Crestus mean to them? Well, apparently Suetonius is, is thinking of this as a person's name. But what uh, many scholars believe is that this is actually a corruption of the name Christos, and that uh, Suetonius has just gotten the name wrong. Uh, this would make a lot of sense, because if there's public disturbances going on in the synagogues of Rome, you would ask the question, well, what would they be over? And with Suetonius saying it's because of this Crestus, the most logical connection is that he's speaking about the contention going on in the synagogues uh, by those who are preaching Christ. Uh, and again, if we look at the book of Acts, there are a number of wonderful examples that show uh, that when the gospel was preached in the synagogues, it not only caused contention in the synagogues, it spilled out into the streets of uh, a particular city and often caused an uproar in the city. Yeah, so we have, for example, in Acts 17, Paul, when he comes to Thessalonica, it says that there's a synagogue of the Jews there. So as, as was his custom, he goes in and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from Scripture. So he was there for, for several weeks here. And it says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ, the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, verse 4, it says. But then verse 5, it says, the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring out them out to the crowd and, and so on. So it is quite a, a riot that's that's caused here all around the, the identity of Christos, right? Christ, all about saying Jesus is the Christ and the Christ suffered, died and rose again. And he's he's now been appointed at God's right hand and he's he's come already. And many Jews did not believe that. And and many of them, at least in Thessalonica and other places, they caused a riot because of this. Yeah, and we find that that's a, a constant pattern. All you have to do is continue reading on in Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 18 provides us with another excellent example of uh, disagreement in the synagogue spilling out into the streets of Corinth and causing all kinds of public disturbance. And so this seems to be a pattern that happened throughout the Roman Empire. Given the, the evidence that we have of what's going on in Rome, this seems to fit the situation perfectly, that Christians have gone into the synagogues of Rome. It's caused disturbances not only within the synagogue, but probably spilled out into the streets and is causing civic disorder. And the emperor Claudius says, I've had enough of this, and he orders the Jews out of Rome. And, of course, when you cause uh, the Jews to be expelled from Rome, this also including Jewish Christian leaders like Priscilla and Aquila, 
this means that the the leadership of the house churches is going to be left up to who? Yeah, exactly. You, you'd be left with the the Gentile believers who left behind to to step into leadership positions that perhaps were filled by Jews, or or even you just have the Jew, the Gentiles left. So it becomes a very Gentile church in Rome. That's right. And as the church continues to grow over the next few years, it's mostly Gentiles then who uh, will be added to the church. And so there, there's a very interesting shift then in the church at Rome. It starts off mostly as a Jewish movement with Jewish leaders, you know, obviously a few Gentiles, but even those Gentiles are no doubt mostly people who've attended synagogue. And now you're, you're having this drastic changeover with the Jews being removed from the churches in Rome and it uh, predominantly becoming uh, Gentile leadership as well as Gentile membership. And uh, understanding this background is going to be very important for us hearing some of the things that Paul says here in the letter to the Romans. Right, and this is because Paul wrote after these events have changed yet again. So we're looking at AD 49, but if you fast forward a, a few years, Claudius died in AD 54, so several years later. And when his when he died, his law would have been revoked or, or turned over. So this would have meant that the Jews actually returned to Rome, maybe not every single one of them, but, but even in the book of Romans, at the very end of chapter 16, it talks about Aquila and Priscilla and the church in their house. So we know that they moved back because Paul met them in Acts when they were cast out, and then in Romans he refers to them as being back in Rome. So we have many Jews, maybe even most of them, returning to Rome, and this really changes things yet again. If you can imagine the church without the Jews in it, now imagine the church that's used to not having Jews in the church, and suddenly the Jews are returning. And this could create some issues, maybe maybe in these days and A's we're, we're thinking, I'm not sure what difference this would make, but if, if we think of the, the Jews as having what the Gentiles would consider very strange practices, right, certain foods they don't eat, certain places they don't go, certain customs that are very important to them, certain things that are very offensive to them, this would pose quite an interesting situation, right, to, to understate it. If, if you have people with these cultures and expectations and, and so on joining the church again, rejoining the church again, this could cause some real issues. Especially if some of them are thinking that they can step right back into the leader position, leadership positions they may have vacated. And then also we have to remember, again, we're dealing with uh, people meeting in small groups. And so it isn't like these Jews could just filter back into a congregation of, let's say, several thousand people and sort of be, uh, uh, you know, uh, mixed into the crowd. Uh, they're going to come back to some of these smaller house churches or, or, or apartment-type uh, churches where the groups are very small, and so it's going to be very evident. Uh, friction can can happen quite easily because people can't ignore one another if there's only 10, 25, 50 people meeting together, right, yeah. you know, you can't ignore yeah. that. Yeah, it's like, uh, I'm sure many of us have been to, to Bible studies or, or churches where the, the numbers are smaller and, you know, one, one or two people can really change the dynamic, can't they? You know, you might have that one person in a prayer meeting that, that just prays really long or, you know, <laughs> or, or doesn't let anyone get a word in edgewise. And, 
And you think about how much that changes the dynamic. But if you could imagine someone who comes in and says, wait, you're, you're eating a meal after this meeting, but, but you're eating pork, right? Or, or where's this meal, where's this meat being uh, before here? Was it sacrificed to a god? And, and uh, several different issues like that. I'm sure this would have been very uh, contemptuous and would have really raised some, some issues. And like you said, even the issue of who leads the church now. So I'm sure there would have been a temptation for, uh, for the, maybe the Jews or, or even the Gentiles to say, hey, you guys should really just start your own, you know, meet in your own places. But for Paul, that wouldn't have been a solution either. That would have been really when we look at Galatians 2, that's the sort of idea that you have there in Galatians 2. And um, with, with Peter breaking off from the Gentiles and eating with the Jews. And Paul was not very happy with that at all, was he? No, not at all. And uh, really that, now that we've kind of discussed some of this historical background, that, that can drive us to the text of Romans to see that this mm-hmm. indeed really is a, an important issue which Paul is going to address as he writes the letter to the Christians there. Lindsay, the first assignment I give my students uh, when I teach through Romans is for them to read through Romans and to count how many times they see words like this, Jew, Greek, Israel, Gentiles circumcision, uncircumcision. And you know, when you read through Romans, which only takes about an hour, it's amazing if you pay attention to those terms, how many times they occur. These are all ethnic terms. Uh, And so why is Paul constantly um, bringing words like this to the attention of his his hearers? Yes, because it was forefront in their minds, wasn't it? This Jew-Gentile distinction and and questions that would have been raised by reintegrating the Jews into the church. Right. So by recovering these historical circumstances, uh, already we're attuning ourselves to become sensitive to one of the uh, one of the things that Paul is addressing in the letter and. Lindsay, maybe you can, uh, you, you've got a list in front of you, I know. You, maybe you can run through Romans real quickly and just name some of the passages where uh, this issue of Jew-Gentile uh, is, is very prominent in the book of Romans. Sure, yes. That's, that's really one of the payoffs with, with recognizing this historical background is suddenly just even a quick skim through Romans. Almost every chapter relates to this issue in some way, and you can see that this issue amongst others, which we'll discuss in future episodes, but that this issue is driving some of what Paul is saying, or even just the way that he's saying it. If you if you think of the Jews re-entering the church, you think of Jews, perhaps even those who are continuing to, to live under the Torah, you know, choosing to do that, and they're, they're then following these certain commands, and, and maybe there's even the question of, well, what place does the law have for the Gentiles? You know, should the Gentiles take the law? On themselves as well and and then there's a question of all are we equal members in the family of God and how does one enter the family of God and uh, questions about even the the state of current Israel unbelieving Israel right that the nation or the larger body of Israelites who have not believed the gospel what about them should we should the Gentiles you know who are already outnumbering the Jews should they start to think arrogantly towards the very small population of Jews in Rome and what should we think what should we be thinking about the rest of the Romans and so on so Paul is addressing these issues when we when we look even at the very beginning of 
the letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, he says that the, the gospel of God was promised beforehand through the prophets. It was pre-promised. Right? So he's linking his message to the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. But then later also he says that salvation doesn't come through the law, but the law and the prophets testify to it. So, so even here he's raising this issue that, that is important. There's a question of how does the message of Christ relate to the Jewish scriptures? Is it, do we just do away with the Jewish scriptures or, or, do we, or is it in harmony with the scriptures and so on? And then even later in the very first chapter of Romans all the way through to chapter 3, Paul seeks to establish that the, the Jews and the Gentiles are, are equally under God's wrath. Apart from Christ, they are, they are just as lost, despite the fact that they have different situations and despite the fact that the Jews had access to God's word and, and his requirements from people, all of these things, despite all of that, they're still under wrath. In fact, Paul says, verse 9 of chapter 3, Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are under sin. So at the end of this section, that's his conclusion, that that Jew and Greek are under sin. So you can imagine the, the pride being deflated amongst <laughs> the Jews and the Gentile believers in, in Rome, and maybe some of their disputes being dispelled just through those words. And then there's the question, of course, of, well, what about the, what advantage has the Jew? Chapter 3, verse 1. Or what is the value of circumcision? Right? These are questions that are, that are natural to raise. And then chapter 9, 1 through 5 addresses those same questions. What are the benefits of Jewishness? Uh, chapter 4 talks about being members of Abraham's family, right? If, if we are, for us to receive the promise of God and, and his Messiah, we want to be descendants of Abraham, spiritually at least. And so there's that question is, do we become attached to Abraham and his promises and his covenant? Do we receive that through circumcision or taking on the law? And Paul says, no, it comes through faith, just the same faith of Abraham. So that means Gentiles can receive this without taking on the law. Paul then in Romans 5, 12 through 21, universalizes the problem of sin by looking at Adam, which when you look at Adam, you're, you're bypassing cultures, nationalities, people, groups, the law. You're, you're going before all of that, and you're looking at the very, very beginning. And Paul shows this as a universal problem. Paul also addresses in Romans 7 through chapter 8 the role of the law for the Christian. What place does the law have for the Christian today? And we will look at that probably in a future week. And then 9 through 11 discusses God's promises to Israel. What about the future of Israel? Will they be saved? Has God abandoned the Jewish people? And this is where these verses, these chapters fit in. And then finally, the question, which might have been one of the primary questions, really, when you think about practically what's going on in these churches, the matters of conscience in regards to food, drink and certain days are addressed in chapter 14 and that spills over into the beginning of 15 where Paul is saying there are some who who don't want to eat certain food there are some who want to observe certain days and really when we think of it that that harmonizes quite well with the concerns of the Jewish people who are still loving, living under the law versus the Gentiles predominantly Gentiles who wouldn't have been living under the law and wouldn't be concerned with these issues. So Paul says, how do we resolve this? And it's interesting that he doesn't say, well, one of you uh, is clearly right, one of you is clearly wrong, so the other party just needs to, to get over it. But instead he 
really comes in as a pastor here and says, this is an opportunity for you to love each other. And even if you continue to live in your separate ways, here's how you can live in these ways unto Christ, in obedience with Christ. And, and really you can eat to the Lord and you can abstain to the Lord. And on either way, God is glorified. So really, he that's one of my favorite chapters in Romans, actually, despite the fact that probably every other chapter is equally as, as a favorite to me. Uh, chapter 14, I always love teaching through that. Yeah, and it's really a key chapter to, to show that some of these uh, issues that Paul is addressing does indeed concern uh, Jewish and Gentile ways of life. Uh, that's a great quick survey that you went through for us, uh, Lindsay, and as, as uh, you and I are affirming here, every Every chapter of Romans seems to raise this uh, identity of Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. And so obviously it's an important issue. Other things that factor into this are Paul's statements like, God is no respecter of persons, which he mentions several times. And he, uh, he frequently emphasizes the word all throughout the book of Romans, that three-letter word all, so that he's including both Jew and Gentile under one umbrella in Christ. Another important piece of background info that uh, a lot of people, uh, particularly the, the average Christian, is probably not aware of. Uh, and that concerns uh, the, the uh, social situation between Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles in the Roman Empire. Uh, we learned through Roman history that, that there were actually um, uh, a lot of, um, there was a lot of civic unrest and civic violence going on over about a 200-year period, the period between 100 BC to 100 AD, and that during that 200-year period, there were four waves of ethnic violence. Uh, in other words, cities in which um, mob riots were taking place where Jews were killing Gentiles or Gentiles were killing Jews. And uh, this is something that we don't hear a lot about. In fact, uh, out of uh, all of the Romans commentaries I've read, uh, only a few of them really address this issue. But it's actually quite significant and feeds into our understanding here of the animosity between Jews and Gentiles uh, and why this is an issue that, that Paul might need to address in the letter to the Romans. Now, we're familiar with Jewish animosity toward Gentiles. We talk about that a lot in the church based on certain passages in the New Testament. Uh, the Galatians 2 passage that you mentioned, Lindsay, is certainly one of those. But what often isn't emphasized is that the Gentiles also bore the same animosity and prejudice toward Jews. So we have uh, many examples uh, by Roman writers, and just to point you to one, the Roman historian historian Tacitus uh, says the following concerning Jews. He says, now, t let me give you some background here. Tacitus is up upset that uh, some, of the, uh, some of the Romans or uh, Gentiles uh, within Rome are, are actually attending synagogue. They're actually uh, converting to Judaism. And so here's what he has to say about that. Those who have gone over to their way of life, and he means the Jews, they follow the same practice, and the earliest lesson they receive is to despise the gods, to disown their country, and to regard their parents, children, and brothers as of little account. 
And so these are very sarcastic words uh, and, and show the prejudice that uh, many Romans like Tacitus have people. They, they don't worship the gods, uh, and, and because they don't worship the gods, there, there are a lot of civic festivities that they wouldn't participate in. Uh, there are a lot of home rituals that they would not take part in. And so this is going to separate them from family, and this is going to separate them from uh, activities and fraternities within the city itself. And so Romans like Tacitus, they just despise this, and they see Judaism as uh, something that actually uh, drives a wedge between people rather than something uh, that can potentially bring people together. Now, uh, I mentioned uh, that this animosity uh, between these two groups uh, uh, expressed itself in waves of violence that broke out in the Roman Empire over a period of 200 years. And what's interesting is that one of those waves of violence occurred between the years 38 to 49 AD. So this is just shortly before Paul pens the letter to Romans. So, um, Lindsay, just to give an example, cities such as Antioch of Syria. Now, this is uh, the place um, where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey from. This is a large congregation of believers. Well, in the years 39 to 40, the city of uh, Antioch saw a lot of ethnic violence. The city of Babylon in 41 AD, there were several places within ancient Israelite territory, what we tend to refer to now as, as Palestine, um, in, in, uh, during these years when ethnic violence broke out. And uh, one of the biggest places in which ethnic violence broke out was in Alexandria, Egypt, during the years 38 to 41. In fact, the Jews even sent a delegation to Caesar uh, to try and deal with uh, the, the prejudice that they were experiencing and the violence that they were experiencing. Uh, so this is really, really important because when we recognize that there was all this ethnic violence going on, and we might compare it to what's going on in America today, Sadly, uh, with with the with the racial problems that exist and the the protests and riots that break out and the violence that breaks out, and so it's certainly something for those that are living in America can can relate to. Uh, only this was even on a larger, more violent scale than uh, we're currently experiencing in the states. Yeah, one thing to add to that, Randy, is I notice you're saying that one of the ways of violence occurred between thirty-eight and forty-nine. AD and even just the general period, it's interesting that, that this general period overlaps with the time that the Jews were kicked out of Rome. Uh, it makes me think that, that Claudius's frustration was not isolated, you know, it's not out of the blue, but that it's probably, uh, even though we know the specific reason is linked to Crestus, I'm sure that his own heart was probably getting frustrated with these riots. And it, this might have just been the culminating fact that made him say, okay, I've had enough. Yeah, it, it certainly makes a lot of sense. And it's also interesting that it's somewhere in this time period that Paul and Barnabas are called to be missionaries uh, to the Gentiles out of the church at Antioch of Syria. You talk about how God is so countercultural uh, and how he wants to spread his influence into the world to bring reconciliation and to bring peace, not only with himself, but amongst uh, the people of the world. 
And it's really extraordinary to put the Gentile mission in this social and historical context to realize that they're going out as Jews preaching to uh, Gentile populations who really don't look kindly upon Jews. Uh, what a great step of faith for Paul and Barnabas and then others who followed to take. Yeah, so in, in light of these things that we've just been discussing and in, in light of the issues historically between the, the Jews returning and, and even before that, the, the animosity between Jew and Gentile, we can really see that, that Romans, when we think of Romans, we can so often think of it, oh, this is a theological book. And it is. It's, it probably is Paul's most theological book. And it is his longest, and there are reasons why we treat it as such. But what we've just covered here really shows you that there's another side to Romans, and we're going to see even next uh, episode that there's even more to say about Romans. But it's it's more than just a heavy book of theology, but it's actually very pastorally driven, and he's wanting to overcome these ethnic barriers. So when we think of Romans... And we think of it as theology, that's that's well and good, but it's theology in service of uniting people, uniting different people groups and showing that that we are all one in Christ and that Christ brings reconciliation. So Romans is is more than just this theology textbook, but it's it's also a very practical pastoral letter written to to a church that ex, is experiencing very real and even contemporary problems. So Paul's letter has real and contemporary application for us today as well. Yeah, it certainly does. And I think everything you just said there, Lindsay, uh, illustrates the importance of digging into the historical and social background. Uh, it's it's because of, of that background research and then just being sensitive to the language that Paul uses in Romans of Jew, Gentile, and so on, that, that this message really begins to jump off the page at you and you begin to see wow, uh, here's, here's something in Romans that um, uh, maybe on the surface didn't seem quite as obvious, but is a very, very significant uh, part of the purpose in, in Paul's writing. And as you also are saying, has such great application for the church today uh, in our contemporary situation and, and what we're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, when, when you say that, it makes me think of Romans 9 through 11 and how for many uh, Bible readers and scholars even these chapters people have sometimes thought that Paul just sort of copied and pasted <laughs> these chapters into Romans because they seem so out of the blue and they seem like sort of a subsection or, or something separate that he would have written and put it in here because well I, I need to put it in there somewhere but we can see that it's actually very central to the concerns of this church and Paul's own concerns for this church, and especially even chapter 14 and, and 15, talking about uh, matters of conscience. We can see by looking at this historical background that, that this chapter and, and the next part of 15, they're really central as well. They're not just simply uh, Paul saying, well, I, I think I'll write about this topic now because you know this is the application section of the letter, so I may as well write about this issue. But we can see that it's actually very, very applicable and pertinent to the issues in, in Rome and that the church was experiencing. Yes, absolutely. And so what this does, um, as I had mentioned earlier, is it sort of uh, helps us get a little bit of appreciation for the flesh and blood people that Paul was writing to. And we know the names of some of them in Romans 16. 
And now we know some of the issues that they're dealing with. Uh, and so we can read this letter with a little deeper understanding with this sort of background. Yeah, that's great, Randy. And I hope that our, our listeners will have appreciated this and, and I'd encourage them to go reread Romans and just be thinking of this issue. And join us again for our next episode where we will be discussing really further reasons why Paul would have written Romans. This is one of the issues, and there are, there are a few others that we can get to that won't require as much explaining as this one probably, but they really shed just as much light on the, the letter as this issue does. So thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope you enjoy it. If you have any questions, you can comment on our website, beyondreadingthebible.com. And also, we would encourage you to to share this podcast if you enjoy it. You can share it with your friends. Just you know, put it put it up on Facebook or um, or also review it on iTunes, the iTunes Store. You can find us on there. And if you want to give it a good review, we'll be very grateful for that as well. And if you do have any uh, feedback beyond that, uh, just let us know. We'll we'll be in touch. There's a number of different ways to find us. So thank you again for joining us, and we'll speak to you again soon.